know, when you started a church, just watching people join 20 years later, I was talking to Nancy saying, hey, Colby was probably born when we started the church, which wasn't a good thing to say to her right at that moment because <laughs> it made us both feel old. Uh, but Tara Sanders, now Tara Hackney, she was in my Young Life Club as a high school student. So, uh, you know, I'm standing there thinking, gosh, who would have ever guessed, you know, she would have never guessed I would have been the pastor of a church, and here she's involved with uh, the mission, so it's really great joy. Uh, we are going to take a look at Math or Luke chapter 6 today, so if you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, if you don't have a, a Bible in front of you, there's a blue Bible, 861. We're in a series in Luke, and this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll read uh, verse 20 through 26. So let's stand together as we read God's word. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. In my office, I have a lot of pictures. Quite a few of them are couples on their wedding day. I have an 8 by 11 picture of my parents on their wedding day, a black and white photo taken of them at the front of the First Baptist Church in Benton, Arkansas, 1955. Of course, my favorite is the one of my wife and I, Nancy. We just newly minted man and wife, and we had walked down the aisle, we're standing in a doorway in New Jersey in 1987, somebody took a picture, that was just sort of a random photo, it's one of my favorite photos. Of course, I have quite a few pictures of some of you, people that I've had the honor to officiate their wedding over the last 20 years, and in some sense, all these pictures are the same. Whether they were taken in 1955 or in 2021, the, the, the frame is wall-to-wall smiles. You know, this, this joyful moment just right after you've gotten married, 
These big, beaming, youthful smiles fill up every frame of each photograph. And as I stared at each of those photographs and frames this week, I wanted to climb into the frame. I wanted to climb into the moment and, and look at the couple at the moment they just got married and ask, when you said I do, what were you expecting? I mean, you know, you've just walked down the aisle, you're standing in a doorway, you're whispering to your new wife or, or husband, and, and just right at that moment, I want to say, what, what, what are you expecting? What, what future plan is already formulated in your mind? Like, oh, I know this is the way everything's going to work out. Then I want to grab that couple now, maybe many years later, and say, What expectations required significant adjustment? What what did you think at that moment that now over time you realize some significant adjustments had to be made? In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus calls 12 young men to to himself. Follow me, he says. Come follow me. And there's a list of them there. It's just a straightforward request. And these 12 young men, they leave everything to follow Jesus and I want to jump into that little picture frame and say, guys, they're, they're, they're 16 to maybe 24 years old. And, and if you could have sort of had that first photo of Jesus and his team, I would want to jump into that little picture frame and ask these young men, well, what are you expecting? I mean, you've got all these beaming smiles. Jesus has called your name. He spent this all-night prayer session. He's come down, and it's like he's picked the varsity team, and, and your name got called, and you got in the photo with Jesus, and, and you have all these hopes and expectations. What are they? What do you expect when you follow Jesus? What about you? Many of you have heard the same voice, follow me. And some day or maybe a season, you remember, hey, that was that year, somewhere during that summer, maybe at that moment at a camp or whatever it is, you heard the voice. You said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus. And I would want to go back and ask you, well, what, what were you expecting? I'm, I'm turning my life off over to Jesus. What does that mean? What story do you have in your mind? What is going to be required How's, every, how's your life going to play out? One thing that should be clear to every young couple, this is not a newsflash, is that when they get married, they should expect to make some significant adjustments. Did I hear an amen to some, somebody in there? <laughs> Same is true for everybody who follows Jesus. Every follower of Jesus, everybody who hears, follow me, and you say, I do, I will. It's okay to have expectations. It's okay to have a story in your mind of how it's going to turn out, but there's going to be some adjustments to those expectations. I just want to mention two passages that will help me explain this. Matthew four nineteen, Jesus is calling Peter, James, and John. Remember the, the fishermen? Come, follow me, and what does he say? I will make, I will make, key little phrase. Come, follow me, and you'll just magically become fishers of men. 
Uh, no, no, that's not. It doesn't magically occur. It happens when Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, puts his hands on you. And he makes you into somebody different. He makes you into a new creation. And when he puts your hands on you or me, guess what that's going to feel like? A significant adjustment. I'm going to make you, I'm going to form you into a new creation. One summer when I was in high school, I worked at a loading dock for an old mill that's since now gone out of business. And the mill created women's apparel. And my job is working on the loading dock is to, to unload these trucks that largely had really large bolts of fabric. You ever seen these things? Just these huge bolts of fabric. And I would unload them and I'd bring them into this warehouse area. And, and hundreds of seamstresses are there at these old-timey sewing machines and big, big uh, tape, flat tables and they would take a big sheet of the fabric and roll it out on the table. And just like a pro, they'd cut it all up. they put it through the sewing machine. And out would come a, a slip or a dress or whatever they were making on that day. And I just remember just being fascinated by watching them and thinking, a lot of cutting happens here. A lot of stitching happens here. If you decide to follow Jesus, you're like the bolt of fabric. And when he gets you on his table, guess what happens? A lot of cutting happens. A lot of stitching happens for you. Luke chapter 6, verse 40, a little later in this passage, Jesus says, everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Well, how do you become like Jesus? Well, Jesus says, you got to be fully trained. Fully trained. In the Greek, this word is sometimes used to describe setting a broken bone or, or putting a joint that's gotten out of joint back in joint. Have you ever seen somebody with their shoulder joint out of joint? Oh, oh, it's so painful. Just like I want to grab my shoulder just thinking about it. Because what has to happen? You have to pull on their arm. Get it back in the joint. It takes a significant adjustment. It takes some pain to reset that bone. That's what it means to be fully trained. You're coming and you're out of joint. I hope that's not news to you. And, and you being out of joint in your heart, in your mind, in your soul in some ways, it's going to take somebody, Jesus' hands, to pull on you and get you back into the way you, were, you and I were, were meant to be. I do hope you know that when you come to Jesus, when you hear the call, follow me, and you come, you're not nearly a finished product. It's not like you go, well, I only need some tweaks. No, no, that's not you. That's not me. You need some significant adjustment. A lot of cutting needs to take place. A lot of things are out of joint. A lot of things are broken. It's going to take some pulling. It's going to take some hands-on adjustments by Jesus. Now, I want you to just turn to your neighbor and say this nicely. You should expect adjustments. Just turn and say, you should expect adjustments. I could tell some of you enjoyed that too much. <laughs> you had the emphasis wrong. You... 
<laughs> you should expect adjustments. Yes, it's just helpful to just say, I'm going to need some significant adjustments. For the 12 disciples who get called in Luke 6, the adjustments begin immediately. Just after Jesus says, follow me, in verse 20 to the end of the chapter, verse 48, Jesus immediately begins a long lecture. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. It's a relatively long lecture delivered specifically to the disciples. Just notice with me in verse 20. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So he's got a a primary target. There is a large audience he knows that are listening in. But really when he's talking to, to, he's making these points. He's saying, hey, you 12 guys who just agreed to follow me, listen up. Here's the first lecture. Here's the first things I need you to know. There's a group here, it's two different groups. One group expects to be poor, hungry, sad, and hated. And then there's a second group that expect wealth, material comfort, success, and recognition. Two different groups of people. One, poor, hungry, sad, and hated. That's their expectation. One, they expect to be wealthy, materially comfortable, successful and recognition and have recognition now which one of those lists match your expectation of following Jesus if I follow Jesus then the one of these lists is going to be true of me which which one did you think was going to be you for you I wonder what the disciples thought these are really two lists of just not character traits but Kingdom traits, values, God's kingdom, the world's kingdom. And Jesus is calling his disciples unbelievably into God's kingdom. And he wants to completely reset the disciples' values and adjust their expectations. So we have the first, the blessings or the beatitudes as we sometimes call them. Uh, According to this list... This list of blessed are you who are poor and hungry now and weep now and blessed are you when people hate you. This list is the list of human flourishing according to Jesus. That's what it means to be blessed. You're you're in a state of flourishing. This is where you were meant to be. If you were a broken bone, this is where you need to be reset to. And then woes. Woe to you who are rich or full now or laugh now. Or when people speak well of you. Don't, don't hear this word woe as a threat. Don't, don't hear it as Jesus sort of standing up and shaking his finger. Hear it as a regret. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. How terrible that you were in this condition Oh, oh, I, I, feel, I feel badly for you because you're going to live with so many regrets if you choose this second list. How terrible, how sad that you'll have these regrets. How terrible it is if you, if you live, all you do is live for wealth and material comfort. Yes, I mean, you're going to have some consolation now, but eventually it's not going to satisfy 
Imagine giving your whole life, your whole soul for these things of the world. And when you get them, you realize it's just a vapor. It's vanity. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the wise man just tells us, I did all these things. And when I stood back and looked at him, behold, and you're just anticipating him saying, behold, what a great life I had. I, I, I answered, I, te- I checked every box. No, he says, behold, it's just all vanity. I got everything I wanted, and I'm still hungry. I'm still empty. Oh, how sad he spent his whole life. And then when you look at this word laughter, you don't want to think of it as sort of like a, a kind joining in laughter. The better word here to be translated is gloat. Ha, ha, ha. I'm better than you. Whoa, if that's your attitude when you look around. <laughs> I made it. Sorry, you didn't. That's what he's, he's saying. If you, if you live this way, you're going to live with regrets. There's a story, a true story, written by James Smith. He wrote a book about following after God, and he recalls a moment when he was the chaplain in a retirement center. center. And as part of his duties, he goes around the hallways. He meets different people, and he met a guy named Ben Jacobs. And Ben Jacobs wanted to confess to James Smith that he had lived a bad life. Here he is, an old man. He's in a wheelchair. He's not ever going to move from this facility. And here's Ben's own words. I was born in 1910, and I made my first million by 1935. At 45, I was the richest man in my state. Politicians wanted to be my friends. My life narrative was simple. Take all you can, amass as much wealth and power as possible. Eventually, I had 2,000 employees and three different wives who all eventually left me. One daughter who doesn't speak to me anymore. I suppose you could say I ruined my life. Oh, I still have a lot of money. But I'm just sitting here waiting to die. Now, Smith hears this from Ben Jacobs, and here's his conclusion. Ben wanted to be happy. He never set out to live a sad and joyous life. No, Ben thought he was pursuing happiness, but instead he was ruining his life. See, this is what Jesus is saying in the second tier. You, you think you're, these are the things that you want, but you're ruining your life. You don't realize it. Solomon tells us, Ben Jacobs tells us, but still yet we're in this, we're in this culture that tells us, if, oh, if these things could be true of me, then I would have won, and it's, it's a way to ruin your life. So, whoa, how terrible it is if these are the things that you make your life. So notice this incredible offer here in the first blessing. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Imagine somebody standing up and saying, I I can get you into, I can show you the way to the kingdom of God. Who says that? Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The corresponding passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the very first beatitude in both lists. So I think it's a signal to say, hey, this is the first step. If you want to get into the kingdom of God, this, this, this step, you cannot miss this step. You have to be poor in spirit. Jesus is looking at these 12 disciples and saying, hey, guys, this is the very first adjustment. 
It's going to be a difficult adjustment, but you have to make this adjustment if you want to follow me. So poor in spirit means you finally realize you have nothing to offer in your own salvation. You just don't try to justify yourself anymore. One writer said, you've come to the end of yourself. I'm just sick of myself. And I realize now I cannot do it. As, as good as I try to be, as much as I try to hold on to those things that are good and let go of them, I just can't do it. I can't offer anything to God. I am totally dependent on Him. I'm poor in spirit. Before we trusted Jesus, you and I used, were used to calling the shots. Ah, this is what I do. I know what's right. This is the way life is going to unfold. This is the world, way the world should be. But when you're called into God's kingdom, guess what? You're not the king. I, I love the song that we sang just to sing it over and over. He is king forever. He is king forever. You've got to get that down in your soul. can't say it one time. He is the king. I'm not the king. Remember Naaman, talked about him about a month ago, this general from Syria, this great general, won many battles, but he had leprosy, and he comes to Israel looking for God, specifically in the person of Elijah, to get help. And he comes, and Elijah says, okay, if you want help, great general Naaman, remember he pulls up with his chariots, and he has his suit rack on the back, and he's got all these uh, this, all these coins, he's, he's willing to give some kind of great donation, he's, he's willing to do some sort of mighty feat because he's a general, and Elijah, speaking for the Lord, says, hey, you need to strip everything away in front of your servants and wash in a muddy river. And remember what Naaman did? He went back home. Why? That wasn't the way I wanted to be healed. See, I have a narrative of what it means to come to God and get healed. Then God gives me a different narrative. I've got to strip away everything. I can't hold on to anything. I've got to be humble in front of people. Uh, you know, that's what I was. I wasn't looking for that. I was looking to do something. I was looking to give a big gift. You see, Naaman, he still wanted to be king. And if you want to get into the kingdom of God, the one thing you can't be is the king. It's like a door when you have your crown on. You just can't get in like I just keep trying to get in. But as long as you have the crown on your head and you call all the shots and you know exactly the way the world should work out and you know exactly how everything should work, then you can't get in. You have to be poor in spirit. You have to say some significant adjustments have to happen in my own soul. And that first significant adjustment is, I'm not the king. He is the king. You can't take that first step, Jesus is saying to these disciples. You're not going to get very far. Blessed are those who are hunger, who, who hunger Again, in, in Matthew 5, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. P 
people who see broken things and, and just they have a feeling, I wish that could be set right. That, that's not the way it was supposed to be. It's that, that thing is out of joint and you have a hunger for setting that thing right. You're willing to endure painful adjustments to be it set right. It fits together with the, the next one. You're weeping and mourning. This, when you look at the sin, when you look at the injustice, you just are sad about it. It, it, it captures you emotionally. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm mourning that, that the sin that I see has had this devastating effect. It's sucking the life out of a soul. But as we think about these two things, hunger and weeping, I want us to, to remember Jesus' aim is toward his disciple, not to the world in general. Of course, if you are following Jesus, you're going to have a hunger for justice. That's sort of a given. But right here, he's just looking at the disciples. He's saying to his disciples, the first thing I need you to be hungry for and thirst for is righteousness in your soul. Not in the world. Hey, let's just start with you. Do you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness in yourself? When you see sin in yourself, do you hate it? Do you hate how it sucks your life out of your soul? Sure, there's a big crowd around, but Jesus is looking directly at his disciples. Don't look at the unrighteousness on ever, at everyone else, guys. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. When you see your sin, are you broken by it? So you're not going to be very helpful to go help a broken world if you're not weeping over your own brokenness because you'll go out and you'll just be judgmental. And so Jesus is saying, you need to hunger and thirst for your own righteousness. You need to, to have the effect of weeping about your own sin. A good illustration of this comes from the Apostle Paul himself. One clear indication of maturity in Christ is increasing humility. Am I really following Christ? I mean, is this really happening to me? Here's a, here's a good gauge, increasing humility. The longer you follow Jesus, the more aware you and I should be of our own sinfulness. And so the uh, biblical scholars notice this progression in the life of Apostle Paul, and they see it in his writings. One of his early letters in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, I'm the least of the apostles. This is probably about 59 AD. Two or three years later, he says this in Ephesians, I'm the least of the saints. You see that? I'm the last of the 12. Well, <laughs> I'm the last of all the saints. Then in his last letter, 63 AD, this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst. You see the progression? The more Paul matured in his face, the more he saw the sin in himself. I, I'm the worst apostle in the group. Well, no, I'm really the worst Christian I know. No, I'm the worst sinner on the planet. You see that progression? That's maturing. 
That's, that's, I, I need to have a greater hunger and thirst for righteousness, and I need to weep over my own sin. I think this is what made the Apostle Paul such a great communicator of the gospel because he knew he needed the gospel to apply to himself first before he needed it to apply to anybody else. Are you maturing in your faith? Is there a level of increasing humility? Because when you hear these words, you don't hear them for the world. There needs to be more righteousness out there. I need to set everything straight. No, I, I just need to set myself straight. Next week, I'm going to focus our attention on this fourth piece. But I just want to conclude with our beginning question. If I could crawl back into the little frame when you met Jesus and you said, I'm going to follow him, what, what were you expecting? What list of things did you think, ah, oh, these for sure are going to work out? In this list here, any significant adjustments need to be made. Jesus is in the business of remaking people. I will make. He's in the business of putting his hands on your heart, your mind, your body, your soul, and saying, come with me. Some significant adjustments need to be made. But you're in some kind and gracious hands of Jesus. Because he is going to give himself for you. On the night he was betrayed by these people, he was trying to remake these 12 disciples. Now, three years later, he says, you're not going to make it. So I'm going to make it for you. I'm going to give my body and blood. And I want you to remember when you've fallen that he has taken the journey for us all. And so if you've trusted in Christ, we welcome you to this table through this little cup as a way to say, I'm ingesting the Lord. I'm, I'm letting him work on the inside and the outside as well. So if you take that first little cellophane piece and get the wafer out and then open the purple strip. Let's take and eat and drink of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will make. You will adjust expectations to help us see what human flourishing really is. What it means to live a blessed life right now. What awaits us in the future. Help us, help no one here to ruin their own life that they would get to the end of their life and just say, I just chose the wrong sets of values. Lord, we want to climb into the picture frame with you and say we're a disciple, so do help us to have ears to hear, courage to respond. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.